Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am sitting down with Lynette Zhang. She is a, a very big requested guest, one I've been excited to sit down with for a while. So uh, we have a lot to dig in today. I'm excited. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lynette. I'm really happy to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, I'm a fan. I've been watching a bunch of your content and uh, uh, a lot of good stuff, which just brings up more questions. So I'm excited to dig through those today. Uh, but not everybody is probably familiar with your work. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background on on what you've been working on or what you're working on now? Okay, well, what I've been working on understanding the markets basically my entire life. But in the past, I've been a banker, I've been a stockbroker, and as chief market analyst, I started studying, actually before that, I started studying currencies in 1987. And so I'm really all about currency life cycles. I started seeing the repeatable patterns, and uh, I went to ITM in 2002 after my formulas, well not, I mean the general formulas, confirmed that we were at the end of this currency's life cycle. So, you know, that's really what I focus on is um, reset. You know, I've been watching the reset occur. The system died in 2008. So that's what I've been working on ever since then, really paying attention as we transition into a new, really social, economic, and financial system. You know, latest changes, of course, they don't change behavior. They change the rules. So, you know, that's what I really focus on and what I'm focusing on right now as well is all the rule changes that are happening. Yeah, that's great. And and uh, for people watching my channel, they know that's what I kind of focus on too. Um, yeah, I forgot to say that you are, you are the uh, chief market analyst at ITM. So I forgot to plug that. So uh, yeah, make sure you go follow her there. We'll make sure to link that down below. But, um, you know, you said that you've been studying currencies uh, much longer than me. Um, and that's interesting. And you said you, um, you know, following these currency life cycles, cycles is something that I'm pretty big in. And I have some questions to ask you about that. But you talked about um, the day the currency died was 2008. Now, um, <laughs> there's a lot of days that it died, right? <laughs> like, uh, I mean, it dies maybe- every day through inflation. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, but but I mean, like maybe that maybe the dollar died in you know 1913 when the Federal Reserve was born, or maybe it died in 1944 when the Bretton Woods Agreement, or maybe it died in 71 when Nixon took it off the standard, or or 08. So why do you say 08? Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin, 
now as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. Well, I say 08 because that's when they really ran out of tools and the only thing that they had left are interest rates and just creating more money. And, and, and you're absolutely right because it's been dying in slow death since they brought in the Federal Reserve and started to remove, you know, gold, something real from backing our currency. But uh, yeah, 2008 is when they dropped interest rates to zero, which is their biggest tool, and they've not been, and I'm talking about global central banks, so it's not just the Fed, but it's globally, uh, and they've not been able to raise them. Of course they can't. So really all right. they have left is printing money, devaluing the currency, and getting set up to take us into a new system. So that's why. And also right. Christine Lagarde in 2009 in a Bloomberg interview, which is gone now, but used the word reset, about 27 times hmm. in that half an hour interview, which yeah. really caught my attention. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, I think about it in terms of playing a, a board game, right? Where like we're playing Scrabble or whatever. And at some point you're out of moves. <laughs> and exactly. when you're out of moves, what do you do? Like you reset the game kind of a thing. And so that kind of comes to mind when you talk about that. Um, you know, one thing going back to that currency a little bit further, uh, I, I kind of rattled off a couple of dates. So, you know, the day the Federal Reserve was created, they started printing more currency, obviously. Um, the the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, maybe, I don't know, kind of brought it back into a peg at least. And then a lot of people talk about like that 71 when Nixon took us off of that gold mm -hmm. standard. Um, but, you know, another way that I've been thinking about this just recently, really, maybe in the last month or two, is that we never actually came off of a gold standard. What he did is remove the peg. Right. The dollar still, I mean, gold still priced in dollars. At the end of the day, the market has just repriced gold uh, and the dollar exchange rate. Maybe he just removed the peg. We never got off the gold standard. Is that a way to look at it? Um, I wouldn't really look at it quite like that because while you are right, and I mean, and gold is, is valued in terms of any fiat currency anywhere in the world, what created the gold standard were the restrictions that having gold backing the currency created. So it really required fiscal responsibility. In 71, Nixon handed, what, what really, what that really happened in, in 71 was that Nixon handed over full control of inflation to the central banks, to the private banks. And what do banks know? They know debt and they know interest. But, um, so you could say that it, it, it Really, it's been dying since 1913, but yeah. uh, no, we're not still on the gold standard as a government or as a country or around the world. But I personally am absolutely <laughs> sure. on yeah. the gold and silver standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You run metal standard. Yeah, you run your account on those. Yeah, I guess it's just like a little bit of a. I love to look at things from different angles and different mm -hmm. perspectives, and sometimes it gives me you know more clarity. Um, you know. A, 
to to your point though, like you said, well, um, when we got off the gold standard, it took away the restraint. But like I could also say, we never had restraint. I made a video recently, and I was uh, refuting Ray Dalio's point. Um, he said that the government would make Bitcoin illegal because they uh, because the same reason they made gold illegal, which was they didn't want a competing form of money. That's what he said. And I refuted that and I said, well, I don't think his understanding of the events in history are correct because in 1913, the Federal Reserve was created and they printed way too many dollars. And right. by 1933, so back to that restraint, they didn't have restraint. They printed way too many dollars. And so by 1933, the government owed gold. They owed gold to creditors. And correct. so the, they didn't owe dollars they owed gold, and so they took the gold to pay the creditors. And it wasn't, at least in my understanding, it wasn't that they didn't want to compete for money. They owed the gold, and they needed the gold. Um, and so, and then, uh, then of course they. We'll, we'll go ahead and talk about can that. I, can I kind of jump yeah, in there? Please, please do. Because you know, really, what happened during that? I love that period of time, and I feel like we're living through that again with the Roaring Twenties. But when you, we were on the gold standard and you're right, they owed the gold. So if an individual did not like what the government was doing, then they had the ability to walk into a bank and convert their dollars into gold, pull the gold out of, out of the system and create greater restrictions. Right. So um, a competing currency or just taking away the public's power, because that was a public power that if you had enough people that did it, you know, then you have a run on the banks, etc. So they did all own the gold. You're absolutely right about that. But it was to more to the citizens in 71. It was to the other governments, global governments. But 33, they had to take that control away from the citizens. So you think it was more about taking away control than it was paying the creditors because they yes, didn't want to default yeah. on the creditors. Okay, interesting. Uh, I, I value your opinion. But, so that's Absolutely. And I want to say I love to I love what you said earlier about looking at things from a different point of view, because when you do that, it is amazing what you see. Right. So I, I definitely love to debate because it opens everybody's eyes. Yeah. Years ago, I worked with, I had a, a company I was running and I brought in like this Fortune 100 consultant, one of the smartest guys ever. And he would look at a problem and he taught me this and he's like, you can't do that. Like there's nothing in the world. Like if I had a magic wand, like I couldn't create a solution. Well, of course you could. Okay. So then we can, right. And it just opens up your mind to things you wouldn't think. So anyway, um, so then if I was chasing that conclusion, so let's see where this goes. So then I was chasing that conclusion to like why the government wouldn't make gold illegal today or Bitcoin illegal and, and, and well, either. Right. And, uh, and I was saying, well, the difference is they don't owe anyone gold today. They don't owe anyone Bitcoin today. What they owe people are dollars and they can just print more of those. Um, so that was kind of my conclusion. Uh, I guess, what's your thought there? Well, you know, with both gold and the new digital currencies, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when the central banks really come out with their digital currencies. Because when you look at the Bank for International Settlements money flower, there is a small space on there for private cryptocurrencies. But there's an actually larger space for commodity money, so gold and silver, and then all the rest is under the central bank's control. Mm -hmm. But so I think that they are going to, you know, allow a certain amount of it, but I think it'll be very controlled and heavily taxed. 
and um, I don't think they're going to allow any competition to their money monopoly. But it'll be interesting to see. The battle has begun, and it'll be very interesting to yeah. see. So I don't want to I don't want to dig in too much on that right there because that's going to be like the end game which we're going to get to at the end here. So let's kind of build this story up a little bit. So the currency died in 08. Uh, the Fed has two tools: interest rates and money creation. Interest rates are basically gone; they're at zero, they're negative, whatever. Um, but money creation is almost kind of gone too. We're kind of maxed mm -hmm. out on uh, how much money we can create. And really, I've been talking about like the Fed's really you know kind of stuck where like um, if they keep printing, the currency dies. Um, if, uh, if they pull back, like the bond, they have to save the bonds of the currency right now. Like, it seems like one or the other, right. They're trying to keep bond rates from going up too high. So they could do the right. yield curve control, but by printing more currency, they're going to ruin the currency. So like, do they string like, and so like, they're kind of stuck here. Um, but I heard you say something in an interview that really stuck with me. And I, I want to get your opinion on this. So it seems like we've heard this since 08, kicking the can down the road. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing the hard thing, peeling the bandaid off or making the hard decisions today, they keep kicking the can down the road. But you said at one point that maybe they're not trying to save the system. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're just trying to keep the system alive until they're ready mm -hmm. to go into a new system. Tell, tell us about that. Well, first of all, I just got goosebumps. So <laughs> it is absolutely accurate. Uh, but Look, the, the very foundation of the fiat system, the government-based money system, is inflation, which guarantees loss of value over time. Even though nominally, you know, you had a $20 bill 10 years ago, you got a $20 bill today, it's still a $20 bill. So nominally exact, but what it buys you. So, I mean, these guys are smart. They know the system is dying and so, yeah, I, I definitely think that kicking the can has been going on since 1913. That's not <laughs> yeah. actually something that's new. Yeah. Uh, but I think they know that we're at the end game because every currency, actually everything has a life cycle. I'm definitely at a different point at 66 than I am at my granddaughter at six years old. And currencies are no different. And really... You know, if you if you look at the monetary velocity chart, what you see is that it in the M2, so a little bit broader base of money, it peaked in 97. And so then they did financial engineering and they jury-rigged this and they jury-rigged that to create more money in the system, but it still did not increase the speed at which money changes hands. And, you know, really good point all they have left is money printing. And, you know, I've been, I pay a lot of attention to the monetary velocity chart. And what I'm seeing is that it's declining again. We got a little teeny bump up. I said, we have to see, this has to be pervasive. And it's not, it has not been pervasive. It's the most current graph. I was just looking at it earlier today. It's declining again. So, all of the rule changes, um, you know, changing Reg D, which they did in 95, again, to create that velocity by allowing banks, you make a deposit into your account. And I think this is critical for people really to understand. You make a deposit into your account at a bank, they sweep those funds into sub-accounts. For the bank, they can then use that equity to borrow for their benefit and do anything they want to with it. But really importantly, that means they don't have to hold as much in reserve. 
Okay. Now, currently, there is another regime shift that just went to final on, uh, I think, February 21st of this year, but they put it in place in March of last year, uh, a change in Reg D where savings deposits and money markets, which are considered sticky, in other words, you put the money in there and you're going to keep it in there for a long time, have been shifted into the same area as uh, checkable deposits. So you write a check. So that, again, reduces the bank's requirement to hold reserves. But what does that really do to the money that you are holding in the bank thinking that it's safe? Well, right? it makes it less safe. <laughs> it's more leveraged out, for sure. Yeah, especially with everything that's happening with the banks with derivatives, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the tools that they've used to hide the value at risk but your deposits aren't safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, It seems like this whole system, I mean, we're built, as you said, on an inflationary system. It's all artificial. It's a debt-based system. And so it seems like I like to, I I always like to take these very complex subjects and like try to break them down super simple, like first principles. I feel like if I can understand them there, then I can understand them at a higher level. And I, and I look at things like natural law, like gravity, (laughs) I don't care how, you know, as I get more money and more technology, I can defy gravity a little bit, but I'm always going to have to, um, you know, be bound by that law. And we have another law that's like um, sowing and reaping. (laughs) We must produce before we consume things like that. And so like um, another natural law, I believe is that human ingenuity always leads to deflation. We create a Roomba. So it sweeps the floor. I don't have to sweep it now. I wanted a robot so I don't have to clean the house. Like, you know what I mean? I uh, we uh, I used to buy $25 DVDs and now I stream all my music for or my, my movies for five bucks a month. So it's like natural deflation. So that's like natural law is like deflationary, but like we live in an inflationary monetary system that's like fighting against natural laws. And it almost seems like this, the, the world, or I should say the markets know this and they're always trying to deleverage. And then the Fed keeps trying to pump it back up. Well, I would say that that's really, um, really a good and accurate assessment because inflation and deflation, you know, people think they're two different things, but they're really not. They're just the flip side of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you can fight deflation is with inflation. And at the end of the day, when you look at what they're doing, whether we go to negative rates, which would really be hyper deflationary, right? You're going to go out and spend if it's visible to you that the balance in your bank account is going down and you know you're not spending any money Mm -hmm. just because of the negative rates. So that will encourage you to go out and buy anything that you think is going to hold its value better. And the same thing happens in hyperinflation where you see the value declining because the price in nominal terms is going up so rapidly. So you're going to push again, that consumption forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I get that, I get that question a lot. Well, what about deflation versus it's really at the end of the day, it's going to, both of them are going to push the consumers to consume, to just attempt to maintain value because the dollars don't or the euros or the yen or any government money by design, it, it does not. But it does enable 
that massive amount of income and wealth inequality, which is something else that has become very, very visible to yeah. most people. And I don't know, maybe create a revolution. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a revolution that's already started. You know, I don't think they understood what they were fighting for in Occupy Wall Street after sure. the financial crisis that happened in 2007 and eight. Yeah, they don't understand it, yeah. They, don't, they didn't understand it, so they didn't really have a foundation. I don't know that people really fully understand it now, but I think, I think more do, going back to your Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, a good point of this is I just, I just did a video on YouTube, I think, yesterday, and it talked about, um, I was talking about how Wall Street and institutions have started taking over rental or real estate across Absolutely. the country. Yes. And then I, I turned it into a Twitter thread. And um, I got all these comments and some people were like, we need to make this illegal. We need to make it where institutions can't buy it. No, no investor should be able to buy single family homes and all those things. And I'm like, look, that's not the problem. Right. The problem is there's a money printer <laughs> and the money printer is giving it to the banks and they're getting free money and buying this up. Shut the money printer off. And so uh, I think that's exactly what we're saying here. Like people yes. see the problem, like, wow, the American dream. It's the great American real estate heist. That's what I called it. Um, but I watched not, that video. It was excellent, by the way. Okay, thank you. Um, but it, but it's, it's not about making new laws. Turn right. the money printer off, right? Right. <laughs> you know, that's what I said. They, they don't change behavior. They just change the rules yeah. to, to that make that okay, legal, hidden, what have you. Yeah. The financial engineering. Yeah, the problem, the problem are the people at the top that created this system that is specifically designed to have just a few. I mean, it's kind of like we're going back to the feudal system. Yeah. Just have a few at the top that own everything. Yep. Hey, you will own you will own nothing, and you will yep. be happy. Yeah, so okay. happy. Hey, so happy. Yeah. And guess who gets to dictate everything? But yes, and and we saw that right after two thousand and eight. Yeah. You yeah, know, and that with some corporations, Blackstone, yeah, real estate. And that's exactly that's exactly right. It goes back to a feudal system where the serfs just rent the land, right? Uh, from from those. So, so that's 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 a that's a good segue. So let's go ahead and transition into that. Um, obviously, the own nothing, be happy, great reset, currency reset. You know, whatever we want to call those things. Um, it seems that the NGOs, the three-letter organizations, they have this agenda for us. Um, one that I'm not happy and I'm not going to be content with letting happen. So I'm working against that. But um, they have this agenda of of own nothing and be happy, which means, of course, well, if we don't own anything, then who owns it, right? We just talked about that that serfdom, um, and this currency reset that's kind of happening. And it seems like through these booms and busts, we get these wealth transfers. So that's what I made the case in that video. Hey, they suck everybody into real estate and then they crash it and then the banks own it. Um, and maybe that's kind of the way that we get to that, right? Uh, maybe exactly. right right now the stock market's sucking everybody in at all time highs. Everybody's bailing the currency to get into stocks. But then what happens when that crashes? Um, what do you exactly. see as like, I mean, you, you, you said, and again, I asked you that question, like maybe they're not trying to save it. They're trying to wait until it's ready. Um, so ready for what? Like, what do you think the plan is or how does this kind of unfold? Is it crashing the market so people lose everything and then they're forced to rent and then they introduce a new form of money? Do you have like a, a kind of a working thesis on that? Well, you know, absolutely. You, you never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Sure. And I think that they've, 
taken the pandemic, you know, I hesitate only because I read a lot of the Wuhan lab notes. Yeah. So they've known about it for a long time, but at any and, and, and we're on YouTube, so and we're, right, <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, but but they've taken that opportunity to squash a lot of the revolutions that started, you know, right around the Great Recession when the mm. income and wealth inequality really occurred. So, or, just to inter- just to inter- interrupt you, I hate to interrupt you, but for most people that don't know, before that happened, I believe there was eight countries in the world with like a million people each marching. And then it was gone. Exactly. So, you know, we use they they use these crises. We can use them, too. Mm -hmm. But they use this crisis to transfer the wealth because who's going to complain if they can get you to volunteer, which is what we're seeing in the stock market. Right. And the real estate market to some degree, because there are people that are bidding up individuals that are, you know, paying way above market, current market, which is inflated anyway. Um, But what I see is a huge crisis, then everybody going, help me, help me, help me. And then they agree to whatever they have to agree to, to survive. So I definitely see UBI coming in, universal basic income, because the whole entire social structure is changing. I mean, it absolutely is. And I think we've already begun that transition to it. But they've built a consumer-driven economy, so the consumers have to consume. I just looked at it again this morning. We have right now a savings rate of about 27, I think it's 27.3%, right? (laughs) Now, before the Great Recession, it was the lowest that it had been going all the way back to when they started tracking it. Now, it's really high because of all of this money that taxpayer money, I might say, mm-hmm. that is being given away. And, you know, necessarily, I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't do what they did in 2008 in 2020 by giving it just to the banks and the upper echelon. So they had to spread that out so people feel like they're getting something. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing lots of stories about businesses having trouble hiring yeah. Because of all of those added benefits, it, yep. it would cost them more to uh, go to work than it does to stay home and collect the benefits. Yep. So, you know, I see lots of free lunches so that people go along and they don't revolt against it. And I also see, you know, I think right now is like a, 20, a, a 1920s position. You know, don't worry, be happy because of all of the money printing as they were kicking off this whole system. Yep. And that's where we are. So ultimately, there will be a crash because they need to have that crash when they take that money, spick it away. Um, And then people will accept. I mean, I hope this is not true. I really hope this is not true. That's what your work is about. That's what my work is about. Right. But um, for most people not paying any attention at all and thinking things are just normal, well, we're about to see a major rash of inflation. That is transitory. But (laughs) inflation is never really transitory. The speed can vary. Sure. But it's constantly eroding the value that you and I work for, the purchasing power value. That's yeah. why I convert any excess into gold and into silver immediately so that I'm back on that gold standard. 
Hey, sorry to interrupt this video just one more time. I'm not running Google ads, so it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it, all right? I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below, how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. I don't mind the restrictions. I kind of like them. Yeah. Now I want to talk about this. Uh, you've, you've studied uh, currency cycles and I, and I believe there's a new uh, currency. I made a video, I called it the, the secret money layer and uh, talking about the IMF, right? Mm -hmm. um, before we get into that though, you, you, you brought up derivatives mm -hmm. and I watched a video from you, I think months ago, and uh, you were talking about um, a reset of the derivatives market or, or uh, shifting uh, the, the index, the LIBOR index mm -hmm. over into the software index and how that's an unknown amount of money, a quadrillion dollars, potentially, whatever even that means, <laughs> right. um, whatever, whatever even that means. And uh, like anything could go wrong, right? We don't know. Right. And, and if it does, I mean, that, that's a quadrillion dollars that could like crash. And they were working on a test and then like things kind of went dark on that. Uh, what Fill us in on that a little bit. Well, last October, you know, the, the originally the end date for the LIBOR, which is an interest rate index against which all contracts have been, well, the IBORs have been written. And uh, last August, the number was nominal number was 640 trillion, which means nobody knows the true value at risk. Right. It's just what they agreed the contracts were worth. And, uh, but it, once it was leaked that this was a stated number, so that was during the great financial crisis, uh, well, then they had to change that. So they ran a test in this country on 80 trillion of those derivative contracts to convert them into SOFR, which is the new benchmark that the U.S. Federal Reserve has created. Other central banks have created some other ones. And, and like you said, it went dark. There was absolutely no mention of it. And then about three weeks-ish, something like that, they came out and said, well, we're going to postpone this until 2023, which is interestingly enough and coincidentally enough, the same date that the Fed anticipates having the Fed coin ready for distribution. Hmm. So I think they did the test. I think the test failed. And so they had to try to buy more time, but it's a big experiment because it's sure. never been done before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one wrong move could trigger the biggest crash we've ever seen in the history of mankind. And it could just be an accident. <laughs> uh, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, just look at 
I think 2008 was just a little taste of what we have in the future to the destruction of the entire current system. Yeah. The justification then, because you never let a good crisis go to waste, for all the new systems that they're wanting to put in place. But if we have the same people running the new systems as the old systems, then you have to wonder whose benefit they will be run for because mm-hmm. it's not going to be yours and mine. Yeah. Now, um, going back, now switching back to that currency a little bit. So we have obviously, you know, the, the U.S. dollar reserve currency of the world uh, meeting the end of its life cycle, as, as you're saying, um, and, and, and the Fed running out of tools left what to do. Um, a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the Triffin's, Triffin's Dilemma, and mm-hmm. maybe having the um, reserve currency of the world isn't such a good thing, especially for the American people. It benefited for a little while, probably got us through the oh, 80s, wow. uh, but right now it seems to be actually the weight around our neck pulling us to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and so maybe getting, and, and we see the world is de-dollarizing. I mean, it's been de-dollarizing pretty fast at a rapid rate right now between Russia, China, Iran, et cetera, gold and oil. Um, so it's de- de-dollarizing really quickly. Um, and then we have this IMF SDR thing starting, a $650 billion uh, SDR allocation. Um, I guess, do you see, and, and I think that benefits China. I think China probably benefits from going to a SDR, and they're probably working with the IMF. Um, do you think there's a sort of a, maybe a transfer from the U.S. dollar uh, reserve currency over to like an IMF SDR basket in the near future or in the future? Yes. That is exactly what I've been talking about since 2009. And China was actually the first one to bring it up and say, what about the SDR? And the SDR was created to take over back in 69 to take over as the world reserve currency from the U.S. dollar. So, yeah, they have a substitution fund that is set up. So if you're holding any dollar denominated assets, you just deposit them in there. And then at least in theory, The IMF can regulate the speed at which the dollars come back to the U.S. So can it keep inflation, you know, at bay or at a reasonable level so that people don't realize what's happening? But I definitely, the SDR makes sense to be the world reserve currency run by the IMF. Um, I'm not saying I like this, mind you, but I'm just saying it really is logical because it's a basket of currencies and they can expand that basket to include every currency in the world if they want to. I mean, we've got 189 members, there are 196 countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, so therefore you could have a global currency, the SDR, and then you could have that easily translate into local currencies. Right. But the other part of that, and in this new digital world revolution that we're going into, the goal is really, and I mean, it's a double-edged sword. The goal is to hold title to all wealth on these transferable and, you know, coins that could also travel around the world. So if you have equity in your house, for example, and we go through another crash in the real estate market and people are desperate like they were back in 2008 and accepted really crappy terms, right. um, you know, then maybe one of those terms is that, well, okay, we'll give this to you, but you have to hold title on these coins. And by the way, they're all broken down into dollar amounts. So now, and this is from the IMF, this is not from me, 
So now you can go to the mall and you, you can see that that suit that you want or something that you want because we're we're thought to we're taught to think short term and spend your equity and somebody in China or elsewhere in the world can easily own the equity in your house. And if you've chosen to spend it, who are you going to blame? Yeah. So yeah. um and and all of that would be under the control of the IMF, which are treasury secretaries and central bank chiefs, unelected officials. Yep. That don't even have to pay taxes anywhere. Yeah. Because they're part of the IMF. Yeah. It seems like uh, maybe uh, one of these these game plans would be as well, where like, you know, banking is sort of cent- decentralized in a sense where I have my local bank and uh, regional banks and commercial banks, and they all work under the Federal Reserve, which is a uh, U.S. bank. And then other countries have the same set, kind of setup with a central bank. Um, and then we have the BIS or the IMF above that, kind of the central bank above central banks. So it's like this, this stack, right? And, yeah. um, you know, I go to my local bank and say, hey, I want to set up an avocado stand. And he's like, Mark, avocados don't grow here. That's a stupid idea. I'm not going to loan you the money or that's a great idea. I'll loan you money. And so there's kind of like that local knowledge and, and that's that decentralization, right? But the central bank digital currency allows the central bank to basically send money directly to the depositor. Mm-hmm. And so you could, you could go in theory, and I think this is what you're saying, the IMF could issue a, SD, or a CBDC directly to me, bypassing the whole stack and getting rid of that. Is that right. kind of what you were saying or you're seeing? Well, they definitely could do that, and they're definitely talking about doing that. Um, I think what they're trying to figure out right now, like your local bank or your regional or wherever you bank, you have a sticky relationship with them. I mean, you don't go and change banks all the time. Right. And so they kind of know who you are with the technology. They know your habits. The central bank, unless these two merge, and and they're under the auspices of the central bank. They don't they don't know who you are, and they don't know what your habits are. But they need all of that information, which they'll get. <laughs> which they will. <laughs> yes, they will definitely get that information. Yeah. And and therefore, you know, for governments, they love it because hey, they can do lifetime taxes, right? They can just follow that whole string. But the central banks then have immediate control of your uh, of their policy and to know whether or not that policy is working. And if they want you to consume, they just push those interest rates deeper into negative territory and inspire that. So while they can go direct to consumer, I think it's a little bit more challenging for them to do that, to have all of the data. You know, I mean, what would they do? Absorb all of the data? I mean, you're seeing the mergers between FinTech and traditional banking. We've been watching that for a while because of those two dynamics. The banks have the long-term sticky relationship, but the um, internet companies have all the data and know know all your habits. So bringing those two together is really powerful. You layer on the 5G and and the AI, and next thing you know, they have all the data and they can sift through it and sort it all, you know? Ah, man, that's a lot of stuff. And it's a, it's a scary world. I think uh, one thing you had started out in the beginning and you talked about, um, 
you study currency cycles, and then you mentioned social, economic, and financial system. I have this working thesis I'm working on about cycles converging, and I'm looking at. Um, I like to always pull history into my my videos because I, I love I love the historical uh, lessons there, and I've been looking at like a like a political cycles, economic cycles, and technology cycles, and like it's interesting how they're all converging right now. Mm -hmm. um, one of uh, in in the political or so societal cycles, um, one of them. There's several of them that are in that bucket. Uh, one of them might be like the fourth turning, um, where like every 80 years you kind of have the cycle. And in that fourth turning, which a lot of people think we're there right now, we see massive change happening in a very short amount of time. And so seems like that's kind of what we have this decade. Here we are, you know, one year into the decade, and by 2030, nine years from now, you'll have nothing to be happy. Um, we do know that there's massive change in front of us and the the NGOs, the non non elected elites have one, you know, path for us. Hopefully we have a different path. Um, and we know we know that it's going to be turbulent, whatever's going to happen. So I'm curious uh, what your kind of thoughts of your game plan are for that. Um, I heard you earlier talking about, I think it was with our, our mutual friend, Jake, um, kind of talking about Maybe, you know, taking some of your wealth, which I think you're kind of storing in these hard assets, maybe yeah. putting some into cash flow assets, trying to kind of time that at different stages. Maybe can you walk us through some of that, what you're thinking? Absolutely. Because looking at the cycles, there are just repeatable patterns. And so even though you can't guarantee the future, the most likely outcome, if the same thing happens, then you want to be in that position. So it's it's good to understand them. So personally... What always happens at the end of a currency's life cycle when all confidence in the government and the currency is lost is they, they bring a component of gold into the new currency. Then that gets people to trust it again. And, and then over time, they'll go ahead and remove it. So for me, I want to be in the currency that they're going to reset the fiat money to, which is gold. And then gold goes to its fundamental or its true value, which is really, again, you know, you're about history. So what is the most important function that gold performs? It can perform a lot because it's used across the entire uh, global economic system. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, the single most important function of gold is to hold its purchasing power intact. And that goes back to what you were talking about and why you've got gold somewhere around 1800 or so at the moment. It's That's breaking out. It's breaking out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still extremely suppressed. Yeah. 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 So what I'm in is I'm in my accumulation phase where I accumulate silver for day-to-day -day barterability. That's its functionality for me. And I accumulate different kinds of gold for, uh, to do different functions, like we're talking about real estate and the biggest threat for most people are number one, um, the mortgage and number two, the property taxes. And we've certainly been seeing a massive rise in property taxes. Yeah. As that's how governments get the money, municipalities, et cetera. And I expect that trend to continue. I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just accumulating as well as putting in food, water, energy, security, community and shelter. So that's that's the whole mantra. Now, when I see a cup formation, I mean, right now you've got income producing real estate here, just as an example, and you have gold and silver down here in value, but this will flip flop. 
and then my intention is to grab some of some of the gold and convert it into income producing assets or even the cryptocurrencies that are going to survive this because I don't think anybody knows I mean Wall Street has clearly chosen Bitcoin and you're seeing a wider and wider adoption so that could certainly be the one that survives in that little flower that's allowed but um, that doesn't really generate income but the income producing assets like rights water rights mineral rights um, income producing assets real estate etc so that's my personal game plan that then will generate income that I can never outlive and then it's also a foundation if it's set up properly to transfer the wealth to my family, my children, my grandchildren, et cetera, who hopefully will take good care of yeah. what I've accomplished. Yeah. Like so I, 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 the way that I kind of see that from a big picture, uh, and this is exactly the way that I see it as well, but kind of what you're saying is that we want to put our money or our income or whatever our money into a good storehold of wealth that, uh, because we see massive turmoil ahead and, and probably a massive crash ahead, mm-hmm. right? A big crash ahead, uh, lots of economists, and, and, it, and it seems pretty easy to see that maybe an 80% you know, market drops in front of us. So we put our wealth into a storehold that can hold that through that drop. And then we take that and buy at the, at the sell of a lifetime. And now exactly. we can buy assets that are, that are super cheap because we've been able to preserve our wealth. And so we talked about in that video, I just did kind of how they use the 2008 crash to transfer the wealth from homeowners to banks. Well, if you, would, if you were able to hold your wealth and buy at 2009, 10, 11, 12, you also made a lot of money. So it's about being able to keep that wealth to buy in at that sell price, right? That's that so, exactly right. I'm, what I'm, I, I, and I'm a real estate investor, 25 years I've been investing in real estate. Um, what scares me a little bit though, is then we go, go to a little political stuff where you see, you know, obviously the, the rent, you know, moratoriums or uh, right. ev- eviction moratoriums. Right. We see uh, some, you know, Rashida, whatever her name is, you know, uh, Senator, you know, calling for an end to payments, end to rent. Um, so then you kind of, and, and as you know, you've been studying this long enough, like throughout times like this, you have this populist uprising, right? And so it's easy to see how that, so like, oh, it's, it's hard to see like, man, how does real estate hold up if the government says you can't collect rent anymore? And by the way, you can't kick people out. Um, that's going to be pretty difficult. Well, you know, it, it, it's not just this one little piece it's all of the products, the Wall Street products that have been sold into the pension plans and, and other retirement plans, the income from that rent that have been you know, turned into products and sold. So it's kind of like this massive domino effect. And you're right, it is hard to see. The other piece is with Wall Street buying up all the real estate, are they, they're doing it on borrowed money. And at some point, that debt has to, well, number one, it has to restructure unless the language is in there. And what I also found really interesting with the transition from LIBOR to in this country so far is that they were having trouble getting adoption. And when they had, when Powell had the opportunity with all the debt that they were issuing to force that market, he did not. He fell back on LIBOR. So that even goes to these contracts. 
what's the fallback language in the contracts? I'm sure it's in there that they can transfer from LIBOR to SOFR to so because it's too close to call. But um, if all of that leverage is in the real estate market and interest rates move up and that debt has to be either, well, you either have to service it, roll it over or default on it, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of real estate that comes on the market. Yeah. And and once all the moratoriums are lifted, but hey, let's make it permanent. They can't make it permanent because right now they're subsidizing the rents and the mortgages that aren't getting paid. And we mm-hmm. and we never hear anybody talk about that, but they have to because of the products that are created from these things. Yeah. I want to uh, I want to start transitioning. We'll kind of cl- start closing this out. I have a kind of a question I want to ask you, but before we do, I uh, I, I want to take a second just to address uh, the cryptocurrency uh, part. Uh, you watch my channel, so you know I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin guy. The one thing I would just draw your attention to is that uh, I was a I, I became a very big gold uh, gold bug, and I still talk about gold quite a bit on my channel. Um, what I realized after a while, it's because we need sound money, right? Like we we can't have Money, money is communication. Money is what what coordinates the entire world, the entire economy. And when they start pumping fake money and it messes up the communication, we end up bubbles and everything everywhere, right? Um, but after being a gold bug for a long time, I found out really what I am is I'm a sound money advocate. I'm definitely an advocate for sound yeah. money. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and having that restraint, right? We can't just artificially create that. Um, the one thing I would just uh, point out to you, since you have me, and maybe you have a question, but. Um, what I believe the the real innovation, the technological revolution is, is um, censorship resistance. And so from the beginning of time, I had a problem. I had to build a kingdom because you, your kingdom was going to come attack me and take my goats, chickens, and my gold. From the beginning of time, we've had to protect our wealth. The government is here to protect the wealth from other countries. Um but now I have I can store my wealth in a censorship resistant way that nobody can take cryptographically secured 12 words in my head. Nobody can take it, not even a government. Now, there's not one of the other 8000 cryptocurrencies that have that ability. There's only one. And it's because of the network that's been built out. And to me, that is what changes the game. And uh, I love gold. And I like I said, I talk about it. I recommend it. I own it. Um, the problem is that gold didn't make the jump into the internet. So you and I are zooming from across the world. Um, but I can't send you gold, but I could send you Bitcoin right now. And so like, there's, there's an advantage there, but really it's that censorship resistance. So I guess the point that I just want to make is that, um, when you talk about crypto and you talked about maybe the one flower that makes it out of the 8,000 or whatever that's there, there's only one that has the properties kind of like gold is the only one that has the properties. There's a bunch of other metal but there's only one gold. And so there's a, there's 8,000 cryptos, but there's only one that's censorship resistant and there will never be another one. There, there can't ever be another one. So anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there for you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it because I really learn as much as I can. And I learn from everybody that's out there. And I, I don't, you know, I'm not an engineer, so I don't really understand how all of that works, but I do know that Bitcoin, they even said it on CNBC where it used to be outside of the system and that's the way it was sold. Now it is completely inside the system. Yeah. So, and they can trace, you know, you may have that where they can't get it from you. Um, however, they know when you're spending it. So, um, 
I think there's uh, there's two things there. One, uh, Bitcoin is anonymous, but it's not private. So the whole blockchain right. is open, but that's the whole point, right? So the uh, the currency system is permissioned. When I moved to Puerto Rico, it took me 26 days to get permission to open a bank account. Two billion adults in the world aren't in the banking system because they don't have permission, but anybody could download mm -hmm. a Bitcoin wallet and be on the Bitcoin system. So it's permissionless. And it's also trustless. With gold, we have to trust, or with the dollars, I have to trust the Fed not to just create a bunch more money. Uh, if they have gold on the gold standard, I have to trust they have the gold in the vault. Um, but Bitcoin is is trustless because it's an open network, so anybody can see it. But that also causes anybody to be able to see it. So it's 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 a it's a plus and a con. Uh, but it is it is it is, it is, it is but it but it isn't but it is anonymous. So we can see that this wallet has these coins. But we don't know who it is. They do have like AI software where they could start to kind of like try to draw lines. Um, but there's there's dissident tech where there's uh, privacy blocking things and there's upgrades and whatever. But I think the point isn't um, to evade taxes and to like, no. you can't ever know I have money. I'm still going to file my taxes. The point is back to the gold thing. You can't take it from me. Right. And so I think that's the, that's the killer feature. And there's, like I said, there's just not another one. The other thing that's a killer feature is it's the only one. Well, it's not the only one, but uh, has a fixed supply cap, right? So it cannot be inflated past 21 million. And so that's a pretty big deal. Um, so between those two, like I said, just when we talk about cryptocurrencies, there's only one that has those attributes. Um, so I thought I'd just draw that to your attention. I would defer to you because I think you probably know a lot yeah. more about it than I do. So yeah. I'll I'll say, okay, yeah. but I just but always just love to share that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But I know that if I hold it, I own it. Sure. sure. And, you know, there are some good things about the cryptocurrencies, but I, again, I think we've got battle lines that are being drawn between the central banks and the corporations and even some of the governments that are or municipalities that are starting to adopt this. And it'll just be an interesting battle to see. Yeah. And so we'll see um, it falls out. Yeah. So, but we're all fighting the same fight. Sound money. <laughs> stop, stop the endless money printing. Um, so transition a little bit. I, I'm just curious your take on this. This is something I kind of think about, right? Where like, um, we have these global elites and like they're running these, you know, they have these plans, whatever they have. And, uh, you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and the LIBOR right. and all these things are doing, but like, don't they want to live in a nice world too? Don't they still need people to build their yachts and their, their artificial intelligence software? Like, don't they still want the world to function pretty much as it is? You know, I can't really answer that because I think when you get to that level, that it's really more of a game than it is anything else and power more than the money or, or anything else. But yeah, I mean, you would think that they would want that, but maybe the vision gives them more power. Because really, if they own everything, whoever owns it collects the rent on it and can dictate how much you're gonna pay. But who's so gonna invent Who's gonna invent the yacht and who's gonna invent the new sports car and build the resort for them to go to and all that? Well, uh, I don't think it, you, you know, you, you're still going to have those different levels in there, but the opportunities I think are gonna be very restricted. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, that that's my concern, and it's not such a concern for me because I'm 66. I'm yeah. I've got a third left of my life, but I'm more right. concerned about my grandchildren and my children. Yeah. And that's the same question that everybody asks. And because you can't envision it, you can't imagine that somebody else can envision it. Yeah. But honestly, up at that level, 
you know, I mean, they hire to sociopaths because they cannot, the people that are making, the people at the IMF, the BIS, all of these financial decisions that have really a negative impact on everybody, they cannot care how their decisions have a global impact. And since you're not a sociopath, it would be hard for you to imagine. I don't think you are. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you don't present as one anyway. Yeah. Um, but that's why it's hard to imagine the game that's being played with all of our lives. But to me, it's disgusting. Yeah. And, you know, I also want to just, just say that everybody has to do what it is that they are comfortable doing. Since I've been studying currencies since 87, you know, I'm comfortable with this because I've I've had this experience for most of my life. Mm-hmm. I think a truly balanced portfolio, you've got some intangibles like cryptocurrencies, but you have the tangibles to balance that out mm-hmm. so that it really doesn't matter if you're right, if you're wrong. Sure. You know, I mean, that's kind of what I ask myself. Yeah. What if I'm right and what if I'm wrong? And if I can come up with choice or choices that make it so it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong, Yeah, you know, then that's where I'm going to be. So I, I think balance in there is a key, not one, maybe not one, maybe not the other, you know, and I'm not a speculator either. Yeah. That's not, that's kind of not the nature of the beast. Yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here, but I do just want to just uh, tell everybody, um, remind everybody how we started this out, which is, um, you know, there is turbulence ahead. And, and unfortunately, a lot of it is is very scary. But as we talked about in the beginning, if you're if you're skilled, if you're educated, if you're paying attention, if you're watching, could actually be massive opportunity. So this is not a message of doom and gloom, but this is a message that there's trouble ahead. Um, but if you're skilled and you're paying attention, you can navigate it and potentially come out ahead better. And uh, I'd also like to encourage people just to uh, if that's not a world that you like and you don't want to see that happen, then you should be doing something to make sure that doesn't happen as well. So I always like to give people that that hope and, and give them that power. But uh, is there anything that you'd like to end it with, Lynette? Yes. I, you know, I really feel like we need to be as self-sufficient and independent as possible to walk through this. Mm-hmm. And I think we got a little sip of what that looked like a year ago when the grocery store shelves were bare and you couldn't get toilet paper. So, you know, I would encourage everybody to look at what their personal experience was during that period of time and see where you were most uncomfortable and then start to plug those holes. Mm -hmm. But understand that inflation is here, it's ever present, and it's going to heat up even more. We'll see what happens into this transition. Food, water, energy, security, barterability, wealth preservation, community is key, as well as shelter. These are the things that we need. And if we can come together in community, then, you know, you have a different skill set than I have, and and he has a different skill set than she has. And if we come together, then we can all be independent and help each other, because that's what we really need to do now. We have to come together. And, and support each other with our different skill sets. That's right. 
no one's coming to save you. Learn how to save yourself. Organize with people that can help you. And become uh, your own central bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good stuff. I'm going to make sure we're going to link to um, your uh, YouTube channel and uh, ITM trading down below in the show notes for everybody else. Is there anywhere else that people should follow you or are those the two best places? Those are the two best places and um, Twitter, right? And so, I mean, there are all those normal places as well. Cool. But yeah, if you start there, you'll get to the rest of them. All right, Lad. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right.